The demand for energy is accelerating like never before. New sources are emerging and established ones are evolving. Collectively, all sources will provide the fuel needed to support future global demand. Here on the Energy Scale-Ups podcast, we explore and learn about the people and companies solving today's problems to produce tomorrow's energy needs. Here is your host, Jose Solis. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Halliburton Labs. Halliburton Labs works with early stage companies to help accelerate their growth by providing access to operational expertise, mentorship, as well as financing opportunities as companies prepare to scale. Enter to win their weekly giveaway at HalliburtonLabs.com forward slash giveaway. Hey there, listeners. Welcome back to the Energy Scale-Ups podcast. I'm your host, Jose Solis. And today I am joined by Neil Murthy, who is a serial entrepreneur and professor. And Neil, thank you so much for joining us today. How's your day going? Great. Thanks for having me. We were having a really great conversation before we kicked off the podcast. I really want to jump back into it. But before we do that, I would like you to just give a brief bio for the listeners so that they can understand a little bit about who you are. <laughs> All right. As brief as you can, right? Because <laughs> we could go long here, but you know, the short yeah, yeah, and sweet. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess people ask me at parties and such, at least when I get invited to parties, I don't usually get invited to parties. <laughs> they ask me, you know, what do you do? Like it's a very common trope. In, in oh yeah. America. That's like the what most common question do? people ask new and, people, uh, right? Yeah. So I often tell them that what I do is I start failed businesses and sometimes <laughs> I fail at that. <laughs> you know, and you know, I had a couple companies. I've been an investor. You mentioned my work as a professor, which just to clarify, I don't really do much anymore of, I haven't done it for the last few years, but you know, I've gone through some ups and downs of being an entrepreneur. I started at a fairly early age and I had a lot of support and things like this. So, and some of those things have turned into both financial and commercial successes, but you know, I've just been really fortunate. I guess if I have bio, the best thing to do is just to say, I've been really fortunate. I know. I get that a hundred percent. You know, what was it in your life that really made you want to pursue the life of being an entrepreneur? Was it something that there was a lot of entrepreneurs in your family or did you just go against the grain or what was it? <laughs> so your listeners can't see me, but they look me up online or anything like this. They'll see that I'm of a darker skin and my family is actually from South India, sort of a upper middle class to upper class family and Indian American family. And what I often tell people, and it's kind of a joke, but it's kind of not a joke, is that <laughs> in my family, in my culture, you have basically three career options. You could be a doctor, you could be an engineer, or you could be a disgrace to the family. And I chose <laughs> to be a disgrace to the family. But that being said, like I said, I had a lot of support growing up. My father, he was what we used to refer to as an entrepreneur. Today, that term often refers to especially sort of tech or scalable ventures or products or solutions and things like this. And, you know, that's appropriate in some levels, but there's a lot of people in the world. And my father was one of them who started businesses. Like they started like brick and mortar businesses. My father was a civil engineer, but he started a general contracting business. And, you know, I think that I learned and I learned by watching, but I also learned by his support and my family's support, what it could take to be an entrepreneur or, you know, to start something. And these days people want to be entrepreneurs. But, you know, there was a time 20 plus years ago where, and I think maybe to still to some degree today, where people were just like, look, I think there's something out there and my community or my world needs this thing and I'm going to go and build it. And that's kind of how it came about. Becoming an entrepreneur is something that's become really popular. Like really, it's almost has this 
I don't know, like you said, I think with the tech era boom, it became really like fashionable to become an entrepreneur, right? Which back in the day, if you told somebody that you were an entrepreneur, they just thought you were broke and you were, you know, jobless at the time or something like that. Right. It wasn't the cool thing to do, but you know, I think that it's really interesting how it's sort of come in vogue these days and people want to become entrepreneurs and it's the aspiration, which almost makes me think like we need to kind of be careful because we don't want to take away the value of being an employee. I think that's something that people don't always understand, like is a very valuable thing to do. You can't be a successful entrepreneur if you're not surrounded by successful employees. So the vast majority of the people in our society need to be that. Have you ever spent any time as an employee yourself? I mean, maybe working for your dad or something like that? Well, not working for my dad, but I tell people that I had two jobs and I got fired from both of them. (laughs) So the first job that I had was when I was roughly about 16 and I worked at Taco Bell. So a typical kind of teenage job. The other job that I had was after I sold my first company out of college. And that was in 2006. And I had an earn out from the company that I had sold it to, and you know, it took me about three years to sort of earn it all out. So I wasn't actually employed by that company, but I also, they didn't hand me a big fat check. Right. They said, okay, well, you know, in a year you'll get this check and in another year you'll get this check, blah, 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 blah. So I was like, okay, well, what am I supposed to do for the next year? <laughs> right? <laughs> and so I went and got a job in the oil and gas industry. I was in Houston at the time and I got a job in the oil and gas industry. I'm an economist by training, so I got a job in economic analysis and such and And I worked for that company for actually a total of about two years. And then at the end of it, short form of it is that I got fired. But the (laughs) the slightly longer version of it is that I was unhappy. I don't think that they were unhappy with me, but I think that they were unhappy with me being unhappy. And we ended up just parting ways. But I tell people, I think I'm an okay entrepreneur, but I am a lousy employee. (laughs) And I think that probably is what motivates a lot of people to become entrepreneurs when they realize that being an employee is just not what's really they're not good at that. They're better at being their own boss, right? They're better at being self-motivated. I mean, it's part of that. Yeah. But I think it's also that they feel constrained. It's not inappropriate, but especially larger organizations, but all organizations, they impose constraints upon their employees. You're there not to sort of just do whatever comes to your whim, but rather you're supposed to do the things that they're asking you to do as part of a team. And I think that that constraint is maybe overly constraining or overbearing to some people, but some people thrive. So you spent some time in oil and gas and energy, and I'm sure because of the circles that you and I have been involved with, that you still keep your finger on the pulse and you still you know, know what's happening. And obviously living here in the area, I mean, you hear about it and you're an economist, so I'm sure you're naturally curious about what's happening. I'm curious to get your perspective. You know, What are maybe some opportunities in the energy industry that you think because we talked about things being really popular. And I think right now there are some things in energy that are really popular, but what are some things that you think might be getting ignored that are good opportunities in energy? Yeah. I don't know that I'm an expert at that, but I'm happy to respond at least. You know, I do think that the energy industry, so I guess we need to clarify if we're talking specifically about oil and gas, in particular about say upstream or something like that, versus the broader energy sector. So assuming we're talking about the broader energy sector, of which upstream in particular and upstream and midstream are part of that and downstream and such like this as well. I think that, you know, there's a lot of broader global social pressure that economic pressure, it's foresight, looking into the future, understanding that what we pull out of the ground, regardless of what it is, 
is a finite resource. I mean, it doesn't matter how finite you might consider it to be, it's a finite resource. And from our perspective as humans on earth. So there's an acknowledgement and there has been an acknowledgement for, gosh, it's got to be 25, 30 years at least. And those who have been in the industry for longer than that might even think that it's been longer than that, that we need to start looking at alternatives. And so I think there's two things to answer your question. The first is that there's a broader public perception that the energy industry needs to sort of turn on a dime. And that's simply not going to happen. It's not going to happen, not because nobody wants it to happen, but rather because it's, you know, to use an often overused metaphor, it's turning a cruise ship, you know, it's massive, massive hold on the world. And even those individuals who are yelling the loudest about changing things, they themselves in ways that maybe they don't even understand, are subject to the need to pull stuff out of the ground and use it in an appropriate and efficient manner. So I think that there's been a longstanding issue of public perception. And the goods, there's been so much attention on the ills of the fossil fuel industry. And yeah, maybe some of that is justified, but at the same time, it's also the case that there's a lot of good. And so that's one thing. The second thing, though, is that there does need to be a transition. And we're aware of that, right? And so, for example, oh, for sure. it's my understanding that this podcast is sponsored by Halliburton Labs. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, that's right. So Halliburton Labs is an example of the leadership in this industry that is transitioning the industry. And it's not transforming the oil and gas industry. It's transitioning the energy industry. That's right. And I think that there needs to be more of that. But there's not a whole lot of support for such a thing. You know, we're talking about entrepreneurship and in general, we're talking about startups and things like this. The emphasis in particular in early to mid-stage venture capital right now is so focused on software development. And there's a reason for that. It's because it's scalable. You know, you can build something for several hundreds of thousands of dollars if you put the right marketing budget and the right marketing emphasis on that, you can build that up into a multi-tens of millions, if not greater, company. But we live in a physical world and energy is that fuel, literally, that fuels that physical world. And therefore, it has hard components to it, physical components to it, no matter what else. We do. There's a lot of emphasis on sort of like, you know, the digital focus and digital transformation in the energy industry, and rightfully so. But it's also the case that we just need to find better ways to utilize the resources that are around us in the world to provide for the needs of our society. That's what the energy industry is. And part of that is the energy transition. But I emphasize the first point about PR because I think that that's actually the bigger issue. There's a lot of work being done. There's work being done at Halliburton Labs and their cohort companies. There's work being done over at, you know, here in Houston and in Boston and Greentown Labs. There's a lot of work being done and battery technology and energy storage and all this sort of things. And yeah, we need to advance all of those things. But it's also the case, I think we need to do a better job of just educating the public about what's happening and how things are actually moving and how we might be able to actually allocate the resources that we do have to developing the resources of the future. Yeah. So you sort of alluded to it a little bit, and maybe I can take it a step further in that looking at some of the tools and technology that we use, like hard technology and actual tools that we use to actually 
perform oil and gas operations if we could get better at producing maybe them in a more sustainable manner, being more efficient with them, you know, increasing the longevity of those assets in such a manner, making them more efficient in some way, right? Then we definitely, I think that might be a really good opportunity for us to maybe help fix a little bit of that PR issue. I agree. And change that narrative a little bit better. And I do think there are companies, I spoke with somebody from Oxy earlier today and, you know, they've got a new venture that they've launched. I think it's like, if I remember correctly, it's some sort of carbon capture technology that they're working on through like air carbon capture or something like that. But, you know, Chevron's got Shell, Chevron Energy Ventures, stuff like that. I mean, they're all working towards, you know, really trying to be the front runners when it comes to being more proficient and sustainable when, you know, conducting their operations. And I think you're absolutely right about that. I'm really interested to see where it goes. I think the consumer, I remember somebody telling me about this. This is probably a fairly common trope in the industry, but in the end, the consumer is really just interested in one thing. And that is, is that when they walk into their house and they flip that switch, the lights come on. Yeah. That's what they want. Yeah. And the broader energy industry needs to do just a better job of just, we, this is what we do. We help keep the lights on. I heard somebody the other day say something along the lines of, you know, people get on Twitter and complain about capitalism on their iPhone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? exactly. It's kind of funny. Like, you know, yeah. you know, yeah. people get on their soapbox in the political arena and they get mad at, you know, oil and gas, but yet then they take their private jets all over the country all day long. <laughs> this is that, true. That are fueled by, you know, yeah. oil and gas. My favorite is when people are on Facebook and they're complaining about Facebook. So. <laughs> yeah. Just get off, man. Just get off. That's really interesting. I appreciate that. I noticed through your LinkedIn profile that you've been on advisory boards and that you advise a lot of companies. And I'm curious to get your take, right? Because as companies are growing, like you talked about, they're going through that startup phase, that scale-up phase. What are some of the like common denominators that you'll see companies have that actually go on to become very successful? Like, you know, I talked with Steve Lewis a little bit about this. And one of the things he had to say was like CEOs having a clear vision and communication. I want to get your take. What do you think? I mean, there's probably a lot of different approaches to it. They ultimately probably end up in the same place. But I think that the common tropes in entrepreneurship in general are today are things like start with why. Simon Sinek's approach to things, which, you know, he didn't necessarily create, but he certainly popularized, you know, but I think what it comes down to in the startup world in particular is, and I think this is aligned with Cynic's view, is being problem-centric, like understanding a problem in depth. There's multiple, you know, quotes and things like this. One of my favorites is that, you know, if that Abraham Lincoln, and I'm sure I'm paraphrasing here, not getting the quote exactly right, but Abraham Lincoln supposedly said something about if he had an axe and he needed to cut down a tree, he would spend 55 minutes. He had an hour to cut down a tree. He would spend 55 minutes honing the axe. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Sharpening the axe. Sharpening the axe. And so it's a very similar thing, understanding the problem, understanding the problem as it's faced by those around you and those who are your potential customers or potential users or something like this. In the end, if it had to be boiled down to one thing and one thing only, I would say that's the thing. Understood. Yeah, just understanding. and But, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that I think that that, I mean, it's not just about being a startup founder or CEO. Being an engineer is the same thing. I went to 
I did actually, I knew I didn't want to be a doctor, but I did actually go to school for engineering for three years. <laughs> I was a double E major and I didn't graduate with that degree, but I do remember that, especially in my more advanced courses, that there was a lot of emphasis on being problem-centric, like understanding and defining the problem. I remember one professor, this is now almost 30 years ago or whatever it is, but I remember one professor of mine who gave us a problem and said, hey, here's the problem. I want you to go and like solve this problem and use your knowledge. And we couldn't solve the problem. Nobody could solve the problem with the information that he had given because the point of the exercise wasn't to solve the problem for him. The point of the exercise was for us to inquire more about the problem to understand its greater depth so that we could build a simple solution right and that was actually solve the problem but he wanted to emphasize in that particular project he wanted to emphasize the need for that exploration and inquiry and i think that the same thing is true as an entrepreneur you know we have to be very focused on the problem we have to be very focused on the ability for ourselves to not just execute but to actually explore, to examine issues and to experiment. So on that note, you know, I'm sure that as an advisor to a bunch of companies, what are probably some of the most common challenges that you'll run into or that you'll be brought in to attack for a company that might be struggling? Yeah. So, I mean, I think you mentioned Steve suggested that, you know, sort of aligning to vision. That's one of the ones. I think that I think the way that it comes down to it is that understanding the problem, but not just understanding the acute problem as it is today, but also understanding the broader sort of scope of the problem and how it may manifest over the course of many years or even decades, and then developing a vision for the world and thereby to your products and solutions in your company and what that vision looks like. So that's one of the things. Very often, the conversation that I'm having with startup founders is you know, where do you plan on taking this? Like, not what do you want to be when you grow up, although I'm interested in that question as well, but what do you want your company to be when it grows up, you know? And what are those values that are going to underlie it? So that's another component of it, the culture and values of an organization. Very often, especially first-time startup founders, but generally speaking, I've found that this is the case for all startup founders, or the vast majority of them, is that, I even mentioned this in our pre-talk, I think, is that even one of my own companies, for example, is in a sense, an extension of Neil, right? Like a scalable version of Neil. And very often startup founders see it that way. They're like, I have something and I'm going to build this thing to scale that. But the problem with that is, is that in order to scale that, you have to surround yourself with people and you have to engage with those people and make them to be more productive in a way that is aligned with the path that you all are going to follow. And that requires an emphasis on a culture, which is an emphasis on values. And very often startup founders are not very cognizant of what those values are, not just for themselves, but for their organization. And then maybe the, I think it's the third thing. I don't know if I've, I think I've said two things so far, but the third one might be just, I tell startup founders that there are three A's, I call them the three A's of entrepreneurship or successful entrepreneurship. The first A is what I refer to as audacity. So I define audacity in this context as the willingness to move forward despite your failures. The second A is adaptiveness. And I define adaptiveness as the willingness to change direction despite your successes. And then the third A is what I call awareness. And awareness is 
knowing when to be audacious and when to be adaptive. So it requires, I think, an understanding of how to put forth that vision at the same time as you are, you know, modifying your strategies, your path, how you're doing things, what your product and solutions are, what, et cetera, et cetera, to a changing world and changing your own, your own changing knowledge of the world. I really like that, the three A's and how you broke them down. And the one thing that I think that might, and I'm guilty of this too, but I would have to imagine that people have a hard time with it because they have a hard time not allowing themselves to get past their ego. Because it sounds like that's something like you get to be brutally honest with yourself sometimes. And I know I've struggled with this. I'm sure I'm not the only one, but I think the faster you can sort of put your ego to the side and be brutally honest with yourself, you'll be able to implement the 3A strategy. I think so. But let me tell you a brief story about a very good friend of mine. So she's almost like a sister to me. And she started a new job one time. This is about a year and a half ago or so. And she calls me up about a week into the job. And she says, Neil, I have imposter syndrome. I feel like I have imposter syndrome. I don't know that I'm the right person for this. And I know what she was expecting. I know exactly what she and the vast majority of other people would expect in that situation and calling up their big brother and saying, hey, I feel like I have imposter syndrome. She's expecting me to say, no, 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 you're not an imposter. And of course, me being who I am, I said, you're absolutely right. You're an imposter. (laughs) she's just aghast and she says I can't believe you just said that and I said look you're an imposter everybody's an imposter because here's what being an imposter means or that feeling of being an imposter means that you acknowledge that you may not be the right person to be doing this thing why did somebody bring you in you didn't even necessarily purposely deceive someone you just somehow stumbled into this and somehow somebody else stumbled and led you into this (laughs) and I said but look Here's what you have to understand. You're an imposter, but you also have a duty to sit in that chair and do the thing that you've been asked to do or that the world is asking you to do. You have a duty to do that, and you have a duty to do it to the best of your ability. And then if somebody else comes along that is better at doing that thing than you are, it's also your duty to get up out of that chair and offer it to them. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. That to me is also what entrepreneurship is about, right? It's you do need to have an ego. You do need to be audacious, but you also need to have a willingness to accept that I'm going to do this. I'm going to try my best. And sometimes my best A isn't good enough or it's not as good as somebody else might have or something like this. And that's what fuels you. It drives you to do better and it drives you to do better for the world. People often talk about, I want to be my own boss. Yeah, if you're an entrepreneur, you're not your own boss. Instead of having one boss, as you might in a standard hierarchical corporate organization, (laughs) you have tens of thousands of bosses or millions of bosses or whatever it happens to be, right? Everybody who's out there paying you to do or not paying you to do what The people you work for. I mean, the people that work for you. Those are the people that you work for. And so you have to change how you're doing things sometimes. But you also have to recognize that you started this for a reason, As an entrepreneur, you started this thing for a reason. I don't start businesses because, I mean, I'm sure that I have an ego. I don't mean to come across as somebody who suggests that they don't have an ego. As I often tell people, I'm the most modest person in the world, you know? (laughs) But I have a duty to do these things. I have a few companies now. I have a duty to put those out to the world. 
Because if I don't, and I believe in that thing, the solutions that we're developing, and I believe that the world is better off for them and such, then I have failed in my duty to go out there and provide that solution to the world. And if somebody else can come along and have a better solution, well, then so be it. That's okay. But if nobody comes along and has a better solution, then I will have failed in my duty to go and do this thing and to provide this to the world. That brings up a good point because one of the problems that it looks like you're trying to solve is this recruiting talent HR problem, right? With your That's new- one way of saying it, yes. <laughs> and I've heard this a couple of times and obviously everybody's heard this if you're on any social media or if you're on LinkedIn, you know, the great resignation and the shortage of talent and things like that. You know, when a company's starting to struggle with recruiting, talent retention, things like that, what are some things that, you know, they might ask for your your advice or your help on? I'm going to answer that question in a slightly roundabout way, if that's okay. I'm going to say that I think that the way, this is fairly universal. It's basically across the board. I do not know of a single exception to this, that virtually every organization on the planet hires in relatively the same way. They hire and retain employees in relatively the same way. What they do is they go out there and they put out a job description. Number one, that's a failing point right there because usually the job description is poor. It doesn't align with what the actual job is or anything like that. It's not grounded in what I call the strategy, the brand, and the needs of the organization. And that's a big failure as well. And then they go through this recruiting and hiring and then beyond that, the employee retention and recognition process and all this sort of stuff. But ultimately, what has happened, I think, and this has largely happened, I think, the last eh, roughly about 30 years with the digitization of these processes, is that there's been a tremendous amount of focus on what I call the efficiency of the process. I'll just kind of quick tangent here, but I'll tell you that I have a framework that I use both as an economist, as a consultant, as an advisor, and just as an entrepreneur and businessman and such, that I say that this especially applies to business-to-business type of ventures. So any sort of business-to-business venture. There are essentially four buckets of value proposition. The four buckets are, in no particular order, they are efficiency, effectiveness slash efficacy, experience and what I call expansion slash extension. So these are the four buckets of B2B value proposition in my mind. And the emphasis has been in the hiring and recruiting environment across all these organizations on efficiency, improving efficiency, improving efficiency, improving efficiency. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with the improvements to efficiency unless they come at the expense of other things. And I think we've gotten to a point in the world of HR, if you will, where we're so focused on efficiency in lieu of other things which are also important to organizations, the prime one probably being effectiveness and efficacy. And what I mean by that in this particular case is that what happens is is that organizations, they go through a highly efficient process. Most large organizations, many mid-sized organizations have outsourced their recruiting, for example. Now, I have nothing against recruiters. I think that they serve a useful function. However, the problem isn't so much the recruiters as to how the organizations, their leaders, their HR, their hiring managers, et cetera, engage with those recruiters. 
how they're communicating and such like this. And they've basically outsourced, this isn't universal, but in large part, they've outsourced a recruitment process for the purpose of efficiency. What they struggle with as a consequence of that is a focus on long-term retention, long-term alignment, long-term fit, strategy, culture, et cetera, et cetera, of these employees. And in the end, you hire somebody quickly, but you're also going to let them go relatively quickly, or they're going to leave relatively quickly. And I don't think that most of these organizations, and this is across the strata, like small organizations, mid-sized organizations, large organizations, mega organizations, they also suffer from this. They ultimately focus on efficiency over these other things to the detriment of those other things. It's not, let's fix effectiveness and improve efficiency. It's let's focus all of our attention on efficiency and we forget about or don't care about or effectively don't care about these other things, such as effectiveness, but also things like experience, expansion, and extension of these roles. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think that when it comes to recruiting, I mean, it's a vital part of every business, right? Recruiting, retention costs you a lot of money. It can cost you a lot of time. It's not always easy. A bad employee can you know, definitely throw a big wrench in your business, especially if it's a smaller company, you're just getting started. You need to do the best you can. You need to hire the best you can afford at that time, right? You really do. I mean, at all times, you should hire the best you can afford. But I like how you broke it down into different buckets and not just looking at efficiency, but looking at expansion experience and things of that nature, effectiveness. And I think those are really interesting points. I did some more homework on you and I came across an old interview that you did when you were designing games. Oh, yeah. And I thought it was so interesting. And I wanted to ask you, as somebody who has designed games, what's your favorite game to play? <laughs> well, your listeners can't see me, but I'm rolling my chair back just slightly because, and I didn't even do this in preparation of this interview, but this is my favorite game to play. It's called Five Tribes. Five Tribes? Five Tribes. It's my favorite game to play. It's not what I would consider the best game, but it's the game that I love to play with my friends and things like this. Tell us a little bit about it. It's kind of an interesting mechanism. I'm sure I'm pronouncing this wrong, but there's an old, ancient, I believe it's African game. I think it's pronounced Mancala. It's M-A-N-C-A-L-A. And you've seen it. Even if you don't know that you've seen it, you've seen it. Because what it is, is that there's these little, like it's a small board, if you will. And there's these little dips in the board and you put these stones in the dips and then you pick up the stones and then you place them one at a time along the subsequent dips or holes. And then, you know, it's a racing game. There's a particular genre of broad class of games. It's a racing game. And the idea is to get to the end before your opponent and such. But it's a counting game. You have to count these stones out, you know, that sort of thing. So Five Tribes is similar. It has a similar mechanism to that. It's built upon that fundamental mechanism. And you have these colored objects. They're actual tribes in the name of the game. And they're different colors. So there's a blue one, there's a red one, et cetera. And each one does a different thing. And so what you do is you go onto the board and you have these like little stones effectively and you color stones, you pick them up and you place them around the board. But instead of a racing game, what you're trying to do is you're trying to essentially conquer the board. Okay. And accrue points through the conquest on the board or by achieving certain actions and things like this. But I love it because it's Mancala is a game that, if I'm pronouncing it incorrectly, I'm, I'm going to stop saying that, <laughs> is a game that is played by children, right? I mean, okay. adults play it too, but it's a game that was 
developed and just like many other games and throughout human civilization was initially played by children or played by people when they were children. And so I like that about five tries. The mechanism itself is actually like relatively simple, but there's a tremendous richness to it. It's what people in the board game industry refer to usually as a Euro game or a European game in the sense that I mentioned the word conquest. That would probably be, I mean, the designer of the game would probably be, you know, they'd probably be aghast at me using that term because it's deliberately, there's no sort of like military or warlike environment or anything like this. It's a more about like, it's almost an economic sort of structure where you're trying to accrue these points and gather land and things like this. It's got a very, very relatively simple mechanism, but there's just a tremendous amount of richness that comes out of it. And there are a lot of games in the world. I'm not even going to mention them, but there are games that are extraordinarily simple and don't have that richness. And then there are games that have a tremendous amount of, they're very challenging. I mean, I've seen rule books that are half an inch thick on a board game and things like this. And it's daunting. And what I like about Five Tribes is that the rule set is very, very simple, but it also has the outcomes can be quite rich and varied and such like that. So that's one of the reasons I like to play it because... I think it fits with those people who like to play simple board games, but also those who like a certain richness. And so it's a sort of a middle ground. <laughs> so here's one last question. And I like to ask this of almost every guest that I have on, but you know, throughout your career, throughout your life, we all develop different skills and habits that we find to be super helpful to us, right? Yeah. What are some of those skills or habits that you've developed? And it could be something maybe that you learned through academia or something that you learned on your own or from somebody else, but What's helped you? I can probably think of a few things off the top of my head. The first thing I'll say, which has nothing to do with your question, is that my fiance tells me, and I've heard this from other friends and such like this, that my superpower is what she refers to as princess parking, which basically means that I say, wherever I go, I'm always able to find the best parking spot. <laughs> I think that, that has, it has some usefulness as an entrepreneur because it at least lets you get places faster and you're not sweaty in the Houston heat and right. you're working on the other side of a parking lot. But perhaps the more relevant thing or things are that the first one is, is that I don't know that I'm particularly good at this but I know that it's one of my better traits. So there's this, this quick sort of, I'm a professor by sort of like nature, like I'm the absent-minded professor. And so <laughs> a quick edification of your listening audience here. But there's this thing that in economics that people often refer to, and it's called competitive advantage. We talk about this all the time, business and such like this. Here's what competitive advantage essentially is. It's, I have a competitive advantage over you if I and you are doing the same thing and I do it better than you do. Okay. There's a different concept in economics called comparative advantage. And comparative advantage is I'm not comparing myself to you. This is both within me, but I have a trait. And then I have another trait, which is I'm better at than the first trait. Mm -hmm. So in which case that's called a comparative advantage. In other words, it's the thing that I'm better at, regardless if I'm better at it than anybody else. That's the thing that I do best. Gotcha. And so I don't know if this is a competitive advantage, but it is at least a comparative advantage. And that is, is that I have honed the skill or ability, I think, to really size somebody up very, very rapidly. It's extremely important to me. It's extremely important to the way that I work with people. I work with investors. I work with employees. I work with other founders. I work with customers and all these sorts of things. And in general in people, right? I size people up. And I'm not always right. But I would say that I'm pretty close to about 98% right. 
most of the time. And, you know, that I think is extremely important, like just having that human skill and the ability to sort of like observe someone for a short period of time and understand, you know, most of what you need to understand about the person. That's interesting. There was a book that Malcolm Gladwell wrote and it's called Blinks. And he talks about like that kind of skill that people have honed over the years where they're able to slice a situation, if you will, calls it slicing. And, you know, he gives really good examples. I can't do it justice here, but (laughs) basically where (laughs) somebody who could, let's say, for instance, look at an artifact and tell you like if it's a fake or if it's real, right? Right. Whereas people have been studying this artifact for maybe months and they're not 100% sure, but this is what they think. Sure. But it's really interesting. And I think it only comes, I mean, it sounds like, especially from what you're talking about and how Gladwell explains is like, it's just experience, you know, that experience, all those experiences that you've had, being able to, you know, talk to investors, people, all that stuff has given you that ability, like you said, that comparative ability to be able to sort of, okay, I meet you, I see you, here's what I think you want, right? Or here's what I think that you're looking for. Right. And so that's probably like a necessity to have in business quickly if you want to be successful in the long term. I think so. I think so. But I mean, I think it's just a general necessity to be successful in our society in any discipline or career or anything like this. I mean, you have to deal with people. We're social creatures by our nature. And so you have to deal with people. And the better you understand how to deal with people, the better off you will be. I mean, you don't necessarily have to do so or to hone this in order to take advantage of others. Some do, but you don't have to do that. But at the very least, what you can do is you can hone it so that you're not yourself taken advantage of. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So listeners, before we go, I want to ask and remind you to sign up for our weekly giveaway from Halliburton Labs. It's a really cool backpack. Check it out. There's going to be a link in the show notes. Also, I'd like to ask everybody to rate, review, and connect with any feedback that you have. Before we go, Neil, I'd like for you to just give just a quick blurb about where people can find you, connect with you, learn about your companies, and let's talk about an event that's coming up real soon. Sure, sure, sure. If I may, I'm working on three startups right now, which is actually taking up most of my time. The other thing that's taking up a lot of my time is that my fiance and I are getting married in a little over a month. And so (laughs) I jokingly tell people that I'm working on four startups, one of them being my married life. Nice. But yeah, I'm working on three startups at the moment. We've kind of referenced one of them, which is uh, Talent. So, you know, people, they can take a look at the website if they want at talent.com. That's T-A-L-I-N-N-T. Another one of my ventures right now is called SolverX, S-O-L-V-E-R-X. And again, that website is solverx.com. The third one is called Village Insights. But if your listeners want to reach out to me directly, the best way to do so is via LinkedIn, frankly, or they can just email me. And my email address is very simple. It's just neil at neilmurthy.com. And if they want to find me and they reach out to me, I get a lot of emails, but I do try to, if it's not spam, I do try to respond to every one of them. So I'm happy to connect with people. And as I think I mentioned, I believe it was you know just in our pre-talk, but I'll mention it here openly is that my personal mission in life is to meet and engage with fun, smart, interesting people. I have emblazoned on, on a plaque in my wall and but it's really, I try to live my life through that. And so I'm always just interested in meeting people and talking with people and learning about them and learning about what their passions and their interests and, you know, what they think that they can offer to the world. I read this thing on Twitter once and it said, you know, I'm tired of people asking me what I do. 
when I'm at parties and says, this is what this person said. When I'm at parties, I like to ask people what their third favorite reptile is because (laughs) nobody ever asks me what my third favorite reptile is. (laughs) But the point is, is that like a genuine, I mean, I hope that it comes across as such. I have a genuine interest in people and who they are. So, you know, if any of your listeners want to reach out to me and, you know, may take some time to set something up, but I'm happy to talk with them or whatever it is. And I'm just interested in learning about people and doing what I can to help them and others. So, And listeners, you'll also have an opportunity. So this episode is going to air a day before an event that Neil is going to be speaking at for SPE. The link will be in the show notes, but if you want to come and meet Neil, if you want to come meet myself, I'll be there as well. And our host will be Steve Lewis. Come, please enjoy some time with us. There's going to be some pitches. Neil's going to give a talk about being a serial entrepreneur. And I'm sure we'll talk about a range of other topics as well, but he's going to be happy to take Q and a from the listeners. So if you can come, we'd be happy for you to be a part of the audience. I can bring a copy of five tribes if anybody wants to play. There we go. There we go. Awesome. Awesome. Neil, thank you so much. Listeners, thank you so much. It was really great getting to talk with you for a little bit. It was really enjoyable. I think there was some really great keys of information that you provided to the listeners. So I look forward to seeing you later. Well, by the time this airs, I'll see you tomorrow. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's right. Well, thank you, Jose. And thank you to OGGN for hosting this and everything like that. We appreciate just having me on and thank you for the opportunity to just kind of talk a little bit with you. Oh, of course. Thank you so much. We'll talk soon. Take care. Join us again next week for another episode of the Energy Scale-Ups podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.